Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this evening. I've got a great stream with some great guests that I think you're really going to enjoy. Now, I think a lot of you will be familiar with the work of Curtis Yarvin, aka Minchus Mulbug. And recently, uh, Passage Press, uh, run by Mr. Lomez here, one of my guests, has come out with a great edition of his original work here, The Unqualified Reservations. And it's really obviously one of the keys to a lot of the thought that we have talked about pretty extensively on this channel. And so I wanted to go ahead and take this time to look at the legacy of Unqualified Reservations. How have has its uh, you know predictions held up? How have the theories espoused there held up? What have the impact been on the wider kind of right-wing thought space? And what have the reactions been from different thinkers, media figures, and all kinds of other people who have now interacted with Curtis Yarvin's work? So joining me on the stream today, like I said, first is Mr. Lomez. Hey, Orrin. How's it going, man? I'm really honored to be here. I think the last time we spoke uh, was on your YouTube channel. So uh, getting uh, recruited to the Blaze is a well-deserved elevation and status and reach, and I'm really happy to see that. No, thanks, man. And I'm really glad that you've been putting in great work. Of course, for people who don't know, the Passage Prize is a really excellent uh, contest. Uh, they just ran their second one here, and uh, it's really great opportunity. You know, a lot of people talk about the need to build things, the need to create things, the, create, the uh, need for culture and art and space on the right to kind of grow and create its own thing. But Lomez is one of those guys who is putting in the real work. And so we definitely appreciate his efforts and him coming on to talk a little bit here about unqualified reservations. And then my other guest here is Astro Flight. He runs a really excellent podcast. I've been on there. All your favorite people have been on there. Astral, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. It's great to talk to you again. Uh, when I had you on last year, it was for a very similar topic. And, um, you know, I consider you one of the experts in the in this topic. And a lot has happened in that year for Curtis and NRX and, and Passage Press. So uh, it's exciting to be here. And thanks for having us on. No, absolutely. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you came up with the idea of this discussion. And it was I think it was a really good idea. Of course, we've talked about, again, Curtis Yarvin a lot here. But I do think it's good to just take a moment and reflect because there have been so many real life. It's it's weird when you have these little things that you think are kind of completely online and on the internet and, you know, no one in your real life is ever going to kind of make contact with these things. And then all of a sudden, Curtis Yarvin is on Tucker Carlson. Uh, and it feels like kind of the sh the ground has, has shifted under you. So I think it's a good time to kind of stop and kind of think about uh, you know, how all of this has changed. So we're going to dive into all that, guys. But before we do, want to give you a quick word from today's sponsor. All right, guys. So there's a new movie coming out that I think you're going to really want to see. I was lucky enough to see a special sneak preview. It's called Nefarious. The best thing is that it's based on a book by the Blaze's very own Steve Dace. And Steve is really passionate about it. He was kind enough to have me come to an advanced screening. I'm sure you've seen the posters or maybe even the trailer, and it all looks great. It's kind of in between a horror movie and a psychological thriller. It's very much in the vein of C.S. Lewis. You know the book, The Screwtape Letters, of course. Steve calls it Interview with the Demon. A psychiatrist is called to a prison, and he has to meet with a convicted killer who's about to be executed. The killer claims that he's a demon named Nefarious, and of course the psychologist, he's an atheist, he doesn't believe any of this supernatural stuff, 
but he's got to decide, you know, is this guy insane? Is he pretending to be insane? Can he be executed for his heinous crimes? Obviously, I'm not going to give anything away, but let's just say that the psychiatrist is in way over his head. It's a supernatural thriller that's perfect for your friends who love scary movies, but also has a really important message. It's the kind of movie that you'll be thinking about long after you get out of the theater. Nefarious opens nationwide the weekend of April 14th, so make sure to mark the date and get your tickets now at whoisnefarious.com. That's whoisnefarious.com. All right, guys, so let's go ahead and start out by just kind of talking a little bit about how you first made contact with unqualified reservations. I came to it fairly late in the game. I really only became aware of Curtis Yarvin uh, through the distributist, actually. Uh, and uh, the distributist would, would every once in a while make a video about this guy, Minchus Mulbug, uh, and kind of some of the ideas that he talked about, he would weave them in here and there. And it took me a couple of years, even after I kind of discovered the distributors channel to actually read unqualified reservations. So I probably didn't actually read the majority of unqualified reservations. So at least like 2019, but Astral, when did you first kind of make contact with unqualified reservations? Oh, I feel a little bit, I feel a little bit better about it now. Cause I, <laughs> I'm, I'm a late comer too. Um, you know, first contact actually was, around the time of the Trump election. I can't remember if it was right before or right after, but I tell this story on my show. Um, but just to briefly go over it quickly, uh, a friend of mine, a friend and myself had been kind of left wing. I kind of ran the whole gambit from like, from like uh, libertarian anarchist to left wing anarchist to like ANCAP, you know, that whole trajectory in the early two thousands. And uh, I had a friend with me and around the time of Trump, he just started talking all of this lingo that just was like totally foreign to me. And he kept talking about monarchism and the red pill and Cthulhu swimming left. And I'm like, you know, dude, what are you talking about? So he showed me the open letter and I tried to read it back then in like 2015, but I wasn't ready for it. Uh, and then over the intervening next five years or so, uh, Yarvin's name and, and Nick Land as well kept coming up over and over and over again. And it was finally when he was in um, the Claremont uh, Review of Books and he started writing regularly for them that I started reading him regularly. And then I dove in. So it was about 2020. It was the pandemic. It was when everybody was locked down in their homes. Uh, I really dug in and was like, wow, this is the uh, sort of the the safe harbor that I never knew was there, you know, because I had gone through the whole, like I said, ANCAP nonsense stuff in the, the 2008 crisis and all that. And when I finally found Moldbug, I'm like, oh, OK, so everything I've been kind of thinking has a home and has a has a direction. And, and this guy's been doing it this whole time. Absolutely. Lomez, what's the what's the first time you kind of made contact with unqualified reservations? And what was it like to finally kind of bring it to print now? <laughs> So I guess compared to you guys, I'm an old head. Um, I wasn't reading when Curtis first, very first started his blog, like 2008, 2007. Wasn't quite around then, although I was in the sort of uh, tech scene at the time. And I was, you know, reading various quote unquote dissident blogs. I was reading Sailor fairly early on. And uh Curtis's ideas would kind of pop up here and there or not Curtis at the time. It was just Mencius Moldbug was a name that sort of, and it's a very sort of a, it's, it's a name that sticks with you when you hear it. And so I kept hearing this name and I would see various conversations happening around NRX stuff. 
I remember, um, you know, a lot of stuff back then. It was interesting. This, there was this guy named Mike Anisimov who has since kind of fallen off the radar, but he did a, a Google like video debate with Noah Smith once, a, once upon a time about the merits of NRX. Um, and so these ideas were floating around, I don't know, 2010s, uh, you know, early 2010s when I first encountered uh, unqualified re reservations, really like sat down with it. Um, and funny enough, like I hate reading and have always hated reading long form writing on the web. So when I came across unqualified reservations, I printed it all out and I had this stack of papers on my bedside table of, you know, uh, open letter and some of the other longer posts from unqualified reservations. And that experience of reading it in print. Uh, was was much better for me as a reader, although there were some aspects of it that were that made it difficult to read in print. All the links and the way that the text sort of invites you to go down these various rabbit holes, Wikipedia rabbit holes, and it's constantly linking to like Google books of, of old books. And so you missed out on some of that reading it in print. And so when I came to this idea, you know, now 10 years later, uh, to put this in actual book form, that memory of, of reading out the print version um, was still on my mind. And so what I attempted to do with this particular edition of the book was fuse the best aspects of reading this in print, reading Moldbug in print, while also trying to maintain uh, some of these other features that are native to digital writing. So using QRs, as a way to stand in for the hyperlinks in the original blog. That was the idea behind this book. And I think, I hope it was successfully pulled off. Yeah, no, it's a really, it's a really nice volume. I, I like that. Uh, it, it's good. It's well put together. Um, so I encourage anybody who, you know, I'm like you, I did not, I'm not a big fan of uh, reading things online. If I can avoid it at all costs, I really prefer to have a physical volume and I didn't have that, obviously, that option. I didn't print it out. I uh, I uh, listened to it. Um, you know, there, there's those heroes out there who are putting all this stuff into, like, computer-read uh, voices. And so I literally just listened to half a UR uh, while I was, like, on walks and such. Uh, obviously, doesn't help you with, with the links either. So I had to go back and, and actually read some of it online as well. But um, did you Did you read it? Did you experience it after it had moved to unqualifiedreservations.org the new site yes. yeah yeah okay. yeah i'm 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 new enough to where that's where i i was reading it yeah i think a big part of the reason i didn't even make it through the first time is because i tried to read it on my phone yeah <laughs> so to have the book is a real treat yeah. yeah i think you know the thing one interesting thing about uh unqualified reservations in doing this project um is that despite the prominence of Yarvin within this like sort of larger discourse, you know, community that we belong to within this sphere and the prominence of Moldbug and unqualified reservations specifically, most people, it seems to me, even who use a lot of the terminology and coinages from, from the book, haven't actually dug in to the particulars of the writing or they've sort of skimmed some posts here and there. And that's, I think, a consequence of this huge corpus being available online. It doesn't sort of force you into this contained environment like a book where 
you sort of absorb this thing all at once or in a, a more sort of detailed fashion. Um, so I think one thing this book, I hope this book will do, will entice people who are interested in these ideas, but have only experienced them in this um, way that, that is uh, not quite as intensive, not quite as immersive to actually pick up the material and like read through the whole thing. And I think that'll give a much more sort of profound understanding of, of the ideas that, that Curtis is, is trying to communicate. Yeah. That is a really big deal. I think you're right that a lot of people, again, so many people, I mean, the, the, the phrase red pill is everywhere now. Like, uh, you know, I hear 60 year old people use it. Um, and so it's so weird that 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 the language involved has become pervasive, you know, uh, you know, guys on Fox News throw around the cathedral and stuff. And so it is it is very strange in that way. But so many people have kind of the McNuggets of it. Uh, they've they've caught a video or two here. I mean, I, I might be responsible for some of that, but like they, you know, they they have. Uh, you know, basic understandings of some of the concepts or they or they've run into criticism of it, but they've never really gotten into it. And so it's weird that there's a very surface level conversation of mold bug that goes on on kind of the wider, I think, uh, Internet. Right. For a lot of people who have never really actually read a whole lot of mold bug. And I think you're right that for a lot of people, it's like, OK, where do I even start? Uh, and then when I start, it's so disjointed and I, you know, pick it up, put it down. I don't know where the next post goes to that kind of thing. So having a, a book, you can really get stuck in and, uh, you know, you can dog ear and you can uh, actually study and go through, I think is, is a big deal. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, I'm partially shilling the book here. Of course, I want people to buy the book and enjoy it, but, you know, I can honestly say in my own experience with Moldbug and, and his ideas, I mean, if you, if you divorce like like these McNugget of ideas from from the text in which they first arose, they might seem a little bit uh, like facile in some regard. They might not seem like they have a ton of depth or maybe these ideas like red pill or cathedral. They just seem so obvious now. Mm -hmm. um, but what you get when you really dig into the material is this immersive experience that if you're a curious reader is going to lead you in all sorts of directions that will open you up to ideas that I'm certain you have never heard or seen before and writers you have never seen and heard before. So Curtis, for as much as he is uh, generating new ideas, is also an incredible guide, a kind of teacher leading you towards um, new ways of thinking and new ways of analysis that even if you disagree with Curtis's particular prescriptions on this or that idea or his particular framing of, of some concept, you're still going to discover lots of new stuff from reading him that, at least in my experience, you wouldn't have discovered anywhere else. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. A lot of people get, you know, they don't like sp specific aspects. They don't, they don't think, you know, patchwork is good or they don't like the clear pill or there's, there's, you know, they don't like the, the Protestant, uh, you know, thing. They don't like some aspect of the work and they just kind of immediately say, oh, well, this guy just doesn't understand it or he doesn't get it or these things are too obvious now. But it really is the thinkers that, that Yarvin puts you in contact with, which are the most important you know, Yarvin is the reason I know about, you know, 
Burnham and 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 uh, all the Machiavellians, all of the Italian elite theorists, Schmidt, you know, just uh, Bertrand de Juvenal, all these really uh, important thinkers that themselves really desperately deserve to be read and understood. And so if for nothing else, it's an incredible resource when it comes to making context with or contact with these older uh, writers that really help you understand power and what's going on today. Somewhere I, I read, and I think it's there's an exclusive introduction in this book written by Moldbug, and I think it's in that, but somewhere I read that he's the reason that the Machiavellians went back into print because he popularized yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, no, he I think I think the joke was something like the the original copies before it was reprinted were going for like thousands of dollars. Yeah. And so he had, he had manufactured his own like market of he should have scooped up all the copies when before he started writing about it because he could have like juiced his own uh, library of highly valuable uh, Machiavellian prints. But You know, it's something I wanted to say too and this is kind of speculation, but you know, over the years I had been spending time online in in literary and philosophical circles. <coughs> Excuse me. And I had come across some thinkers that I, I never would have um, under normal circumstances, like Schmidt and Spengler. And I almost wonder if that was like from Moldbug's influence without me realizing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's true. Yeah. He, I mean, the Machiavellians thing is definitely true. It was, it was Curtis popularizing his work that has um, brought attention to those books. Um, but yeah, again, it's, you know, for anything else, Curtis might or might not have contributed to the discourse. What he's doing with unqualified reservations is essentially introducing a canon for dissident right thinkers from which we can sort of draw our own conclusions and our own prescriptions for what should be done. And again, sort of shameless shilling here. But one thing we've done with this book is if you flip to the back, we have this recommended reading section where we've cataloged like all these books that Curtis mentions uh, throughout UR. And if you wanted to, you know, present basically like a history class to a, a precocious young person who was dissatisfied with uh, whatever syllabus they've been given at their, you know, college history 101 or government 101 uh, level courses, this would be a really great place to start. Um, and so again, it, th there's so much value to uh, unqualified reservations into Curtis's writing beyond um, just sort of the, the straightforward arguments that he makes and that get passed around um, and, and have been popularized like Red Pill and Cathedral. So now that we have kind of the legacy of the reading list and the importance of kind of the thinkers he puts you in contact with, let's go ahead and get into how some of the understandings in UR have aged. So I think the first one that everyone comes to, the one that's the most popular, again, they're, they're using the term on Fox News. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of entered the, uh, the popular uh, lexicon at this point is the cathedral. Now, a lot of people... Uh, you know, the, the, we'll, we'll have two criticisms of the cathedral. We get two simultaneously. One is now it's obvious, right? And, and that makes some sense to me because, you know, back when this was being written, you know, it started in 2007. I think the open letters 2007, 2008. The cathedral uh, was much less obvious. It's much more revelatory. Today, when the media, like, directly comes out and tells you, like, we decide who the president is, 
it's a little more obvious, right? So some people will say, okay, well, the, that's not a the well. I still think the idea is very important because of the way he breaks down kind of the decentralized networking and the nodes and the way that they influence each other. I still think it's very worth reading the source material. Uh, the idea that these kind of institutions work together um, is, is something I think most people can have a much easier time grasping. The other, uh, the other criticism we get a lot with the cathedral is people saying, well, look, uh, the, we now know that these people uh, coordinate openly and directly. It's not all this soft, you know, influence through, uh, you know, sharing the same religion or sharing the same ideas. We actually have some things like the Twitter files where people are revealing themselves as they directly work. The government works with private corporations, works with the security state and all this stuff. We can see this colluding. So does that mean the cathedral doesn't work? I have, of course, my own opinion on this, but uh, Astral, what do you think about the concept of the cathedral in the year of our Lord 2023? Yeah, these are great insights and these are great questions to ask. And you have to ask, because one of the things that happens to me is people can see the Neo reaction just in my comments and in my tweets and in my commentary. And every once in a while, people will say like, oh, you're like a 2016 year, 2016 year uh, era Neo reactionary. Like that's passe now. Haven't we moved on? But my assessment is that the things he was observing have been proven more true like over time and i almost wonder if the way things stand now after the twitter files after we see the heavy hand of the state directly intervening with twitter which we all suspected was happening anyway that just proved it to us that if it's different if it's a different thing than what yarvin uh described in 2008 it's like the logical progression or the logical conclusion or evolution of the cathedral as he described it so the cathedral before is kind of like a, a really broad term for what the cathedral was was really just like prevailing ideology the prevailing ideology that all of our institutions sort of operated within the framework of and he was just kind of describing that whereas now it can't really be considered ideology as much as like direct political propaganda um and the ideology is in service to the state clearly um so it, I, I guess it could be a chicken or egg situation that we can debate which came first the ideology or or the state propaganda uh who follows what i have my opinions on that but in terms of how it relates to yarvin and the cathedral um if this is something different it is what the cathedral evolved into, which is very much in line with the way Yarvin describes how progressivism works, right? Because he talks in the open letter that, um, and this is this is a controversial statement too, so we can couch this, but just to kind of make my point, um, in the open letter, he talks about how religion, particular Protestant, American Protestant religion, sort of evolves into secular liberalism and secular progressivism um and i kind of see the evolution of the the cathedral in in similar terms that it went from this sort of like ideological framework to just open you know manipulative propaganda and with the case of ricky vaughn it's it's it could even it's like pure soviet you know censorship and pure yeah. pure uh so 
I, I wonder, though, Oren, if, if your opinion on it coincides with what I'm saying. If you, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm getting over a cold here, guys, if you can bear with oh, me. No problem, man. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I think that um, one of the things, and we'll get more into kind of Nick Land's contribution here in a second, but one of the things Nick Land said about the cathedral is the only reason we can see it is that it's dying, right? If you have a, a mind control device... Um, then you shouldn't be able to kind of see the strings. You shouldn't be able to see that the puppets are are being moved. And the fact that now we can kind of see these things means that something has degraded. Something in the cathedral is failing. Uh, it's getting worse at what it's doing. It has to be more obvious. And so I think there's a lot of truth that uh, the cathedral worked more the way Yarvin was talking about originally and has now kind of degenerated even further to the point where now it's it's becoming increasingly obvious and that's that's a failing of the cathedral not uh, not a failing i think of necessarily yarvin's understanding of what happened there i do think he went too far sometimes there are points and yarvin just does this on a regular basis where he gets a little too extreme with kind of pushing a certain aspect and he has just come out and repeatedly said like there's no collusion there's no collusion these people don't have to work together it doesn't happen it's like, well, yeah, actually, obviously there is like, and so I think he, I think while he set up a really excellent framework for understanding how this kind of decentralized, these decentralized nodes influence each other, I think he did probably step a little too far with kind of how much he pushed there. There was no overt collusion because that kind of left him then open to the obvious point that at some point these people will talk to each other and they will coordinate something especially as they get worse of this and they need to actually directly coordinate rather than just kind of pick up on each other's understandings. And so that kind of leaves them open to that criticism. But Lomez, what do you think about uh, the idea of the cathedral in 2023? Okay. Just for the sake of making this conversation interesting, I'm going to take a, a slightly different view here, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, or at least maybe try to add a, a bit of uh, like a, a different analysis to it. So, um, okay. So, the cathedral, Curtis says, is uh, the instantiation of the type of society we live in, which is between, on the one hand, like Karl Popper's open society version of, you know, free information flow where truth wins out always over everything. It's this very sort of scientific way of thinking about not just uh, like, like epistemology. On the other side, we have tightly controlled, in like, a, like a type one society, this tightly controlled uh, information apparatus, like a Soviet style inform information apparatus. And what Curtis is saying is the cathedral is somewhere in the middle. It's a consensus uh, society um, that is, that arrives at truth through what he calls spontaneous coordination, okay, between these various nodes of the cathedral, between uh, you know, universities primarily and uh, the media. And so the question like we're asking is, okay, well, just how explicit is this coordination? Just how planned is it versus how spontaneous it is? And so that's, I think we all agree that we're somewhere in the middle here and what we're trying to negotiate with this conversation and what I, I hear both Astral and you saying is that we've really gone much further towards this type one controlled information society where there's this top down sort of directive for uh, what is and isn't considered truth. These uh, epistemic authorities um, have a kind of explicit and formal role in controlling information flow. That's hard to argue with. 
Um, and, I, and that sort of tracks with what I observe. But on the other hand, one thing in the Twitter files that you saw below the like headline is that there really was this like at least ostensible negotiation within the bureaucracies of both Twitter and the like government agencies working with tr Twitter to figure out like what they can and cannot say and what they can and cannot publish and what's the right thing to do here in terms of like dictating control. And we really never did see, I mean, I hate to sort of uh, come to the defense of like Yo Yoel Roth or whoever, but we never really did see like that smoking gun that says we are going to say this, this is our message that we're going to deliver to the American people. It had that effect, but the way it was negotiated, how those decisions came about allowed for all of these different people within this, these bureaucratic structures to have plausible deniability and tell themselves that they were coming to these, these decisions through like some good faith effort to balance the demands of the first Am amendment with like public health. And um, what we, what we see instead is not this sort of straightforward top down expression of information, but the selection of personnel where you can guarantee that the people who are within these bureaucracies are all going to land on the exact same place when it comes to these important decisions. And, and so what I see rather than, I don't think Curtis is wrong about the cathedral, but what it underplays is how the personnel of the cathedral is selected in and just how carefully and precise that selection mechanism has become probably over the last 10 years. And so the only people who are left in the cathedral are people who you can guarantee where the incentives are aligned just right, that the effect is the exact same as if we were living in one of these tightly controlled societies, but they have this, again, plausible deniability. They can tell themselves this story and present a story to the public, even through the Twitter files, that no, we were actually uh, negotiating these decisions in good faith, and there was disagreement, and we were all making compromises and doing the best we could under you know difficult circumstances. Uh, if I may, yeah. So this is how I understand like uh, the neo reactionary take on these things this is how this is the neo-reactionary framework for understanding these things and of course it's not wrong i mean i basically consider myself a neo-reactionary and i agree with everything lomez is saying uh spandrel's bio-leninism for me is like the perfect way to understand this mm -hmm. where where you as the institutions drift further left the the personnel that make up the institutions uh drift further and further into bio-leninism or, or in further and further into just open freakishness um so Yul roth and now here right here's the crossover from where i sort of diverge from the standard near reactionary understanding of this so so Yul roth wasn't just gay he went to mit which is a well-known uh institution funded according to noam chomsky himself 90 percent by the military 90 percent by the pentagon where he learned uh how to like and he also studied at some uh, the Kennedy School, which I think is at Yale or no, it's at Harvard. And what he did at these places 
was uh, learn how to like game the algorithm or learn how to like uh, implement, you know, what we call Web 2.0. And it's how the algorithm sort of directs people to things they want it to go to. And as Elon Musk revealed, uh, this was done. Yul Ross, I don't even know how much of this I can say on, on the show. Yul Ross, Ph.D., was all about directing children to pornography online. So this looks very manufactured to me. Um, he's coming from these elite institutions, but this is still within the framework of the cathedral. But then when you see some of these emails coming from the CIA, like or the FBI, excuse me, asking for people's IP addresses and home addresses and asking for, uh, excuse me, people leaving the FBI to go work at Twitter as employees, um, it looks a little bit more heavy handed than that. And I know that Yarvin has made claims that it's this, this is also the uh, manufacturing consent argument, which which Yarvin references in Unqualified Reservations, which is that it's like um, they land on personnel who are going to all land or excuse me, they hire personnel who are going to all land on the same conclusion, which is true. But we know I remember Edward Snowden uh shared retweeted this this i think it was a dateline or maybe uh you know uh frontline one of those uh news institutions uh interview with a cia agent who was talking about how they would manipulate uh stories in the press about the vietnam war how they would like leak certain things on purpose to make it look like troop movements were happening certain ways when they actually weren't so even you know Back when Chomsky was writing manufactured consent in the 70s, it was known that intelligence agencies were working with the media and helping to manipulate the media on purpose. So I do think that we're kind of on uncharted territory in a certain way. And that maybe, uh, although I appreciate Moldbug, I'm a, I'm a huge Moldbugian, like I do think he gets a little bit of this. He doesn't go hard enough, in my opinion, on some of this. Um. Well yeah, let me jump in real quick. I just want to respond to that real quick. So, Astral, I my view is that that version of events, that narrative of why and how Yoel Roth is selected into this position is a bit sort of conspiratorial. Uh, I think instead what we're seeing is this, rather than Yoel Roth being this sort of like Machiavellian actor who learns how to manipulate the algo you know, to advance like his own status or something. It's the, it's the bureaucracy, it's the bureaucracy algo selecting for Yoel Roth and people like him, which is uh, high IQ people who are competent. I know we hate to give these people any credit, but they're like smart and competent at certain tasks and at certain things. And what they're, what they're competent at and what they're selected for and this is something that Moldbug talks about with the cathedral. What is the cathedral's goal? Is it to arrive at truth? No. It's this iterative process of creating an epistemology that reinforces its own power and importantly, its own existence. And so what Yoel Roth is really good at is not truth seeking or not even necessarily acting out to uh, create some like specific political agenda, although I think he probably has a specific political agenda. His primary value is that he's really good 
at doing things that will allow the institutions he's a part of to continue to survive, regardless of how antithetical to sort of truth or any baseline morality uh, those survival strategies are. Well, to be clear, I don't disagree with that. And I, I think um, this is why I, this is why I like to talk about Neo Reaction and Moldbug kind of I, I, I can't really talk about it without bringing in land, as Oren has done a couple of times and, and Spandrel, because my understanding of all this is that it's all kind of together. And I do think the bioleninism perspective accounts for uh, what Lomas just laid out, which which I don't necessarily disagree with. I, I hope it's clear. Yeah, I, I think the the intensity of the Leninism uh, is what uh, then produces the kind of the uh, the self selection process that Lomas is talking about there. So I don't I don't think that it's uh, it's really a disagreement that much as a kind of a simply a shift in in perspective there. Uh, but that said, uh, let's go ahead and look at a few of the other ideas uh, from UR and uh, how some of them have aged. So one of the ones that uh, people talk about a lot is the 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 uh, connection between kind of Protestantism and universalism in turning into then just progressivism and the kind of the descent there uh, of those. Uh, a lot of people get angry about this. They say you can't tie these things together or, you know, uh, there there's uh, an issue with that. I think a lot of people misunderstand what Yarvin is saying in this. Um, I think a lot of people look at this and he, they say this is a uh, critique of a very particular type of Christianity and saying it would inevitably lead here. I, I have another take on this, and I think it's the one that kind of Yarvin has has pointed out later too, which is that this is kind of a Spanglerian um, uh, inevitability that, uh, you know, Spangler said that each... Uh, each civilization is going to spawn versions of atheism that are connected to, you know, their, their original kind of metaphysical animating spirit. So like the Romans end up with stoicism or whatever, and that's kind of their version of it. And he says that, you know, so uh, for, you know, uh, the Western man, you get this kind of very scientific uh, atheism that is like all of the stuff of Christianity, uh, but without any of the Christianity, all of that is stripped away. And so it's not Yarvin who's the first one to kind of make this connection. And I think that Yarvin's right that, um, you know, the, there is a connection there between these two forces that they share a similar uh, descent, though I don't believe, you know, as a Protestant Christian, that like this inevitably has to become progressivism or that, uh, you know, but, but I think it's just every, every civilization produces its mere image in in kind of its end phase and that's what we see with progressivism and that's what yarvin is kind of identifying when he ties it to kind of the descent of uh, of uh, protestant christianity but what do you guys think how does how is this take aged from yarvin uh lomez you want to pick that one up first yeah sure so um you know this is the this is like the basis for the third part of this book which is how dawkins got pwned which is a you know I don't know, about a 90 page uh, sort of short book on the subject of what at the time, you know, was just called political correctness or social justice, um, but what we might call now wokeism. And this idea that wokeism is a religion 
uh, is something that obviously many people have been saying now for quite a while, for about as long as wokeism has been in the public spotlight. Um, and what Curtis is doing in this book is taking that metaphor literally. And mm -hmm. so the question is, what is the theological basis for this thing called wokeism or social justice or simply progressivism? And, you know, this gets back to an argument that Curtis makes elsewhere. Um, it, it's sort of an ongoing theme in all of his writing, which is that the predominant ideology of uh, the West and of America in particular is a kind of Whig history, this sort of linear uh, progressive history, which, you know, presumes that the future is going to necessarily definitionally be better than the past, that change is good. And because change happens in the future, all change is necessarily positive change. Well, you can see how adhering to a, a sort of Whig history version of, of uh, society would require a certain amount of faith and a certain amount of sort of moral and theological malleability in what you believe. And so what Curtis is simply doing, in my view, in making this argument about Protestantism is trying to trace the theological history of this back to sort of the New England Puritans who came over and how that evolved. Like in Curtis's view, it's a straight line from New England Puritanism of, of, you know, 200 years ago, 300 years ago to where we are now. And frankly, I don't have the historical or sort of theological chops to um, have much of my own sort of say on the matter. But when you read what Curtis has identified as his like key piece of evidence uh, for this theory, which is this article called American Malvern, which he repeats over and over from Time Magazine, which was born out of um, the theologian and historian Arnold Toynbee, who was himself uh, influenced a great deal by Spangler and Spangler's mm -hmm. view of like cyclical histories and, and precisely what you were just saying, Orrin, and how these civilizations devolve over time into these sort of secular versions of themselves. Toynbee was saying our only sort of way out of this is a kind of like universal church. You know, that was Toynbee's big idea, which um, requires like all of these sort of cathedral apparatuses, like this NGO apparatus. And what amounts to this kind of uh, American military adventurism, this sort of uh, global humani humanitarianism that we see now as the consequence of that, which is really like the, the, the force, the, uh, the physical force, the, the hard power behind wokeism is this sort of foreign policy that arises out of the concepts presented by Toynbee and the implications of this idea of the universal church. This could be, or, and as you mentioned before about, about Moldbug and uh, writing, like, you hit on this interesting idea and then there's this tendency to like overexpand the implications of it mm. and like start to see it everywhere. And that may be the case here, but just again, like my view about this is as a provocation, 
as as something to make us reconsider history and the, and the sort of trajectory of American ideology and American civil religion and how the sort of theological substrate of American life has devolved, whether it's Protestantism specifically or something else, has devolved in this kind of woke secular humanism is pretty convincing and either way, something worth thinking about. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just think it's real. I think it's he's correct. I think Moldbug is correct. There are other factors at play. Uh, one of the things, and I have to assume both you guys agree with me on this, a lot of the criticism you see of Moldbug is very clear that the critics haven't read him. It's mm -hmm. very clear. And he addresses, I mean, he's not perfect. I, I obviously dive you know, divulge. Uh, um, I, I obviously uh, disagree with him on a couple things here and there, but this one I I, I accept wholesale. Um, so if you if you go back to like the pre nineteen uh, 20th century in in America, like before all the immigrants came over from from Europe, because communism, the the thing people, the refutation people have against Moldbug is that the things he he attributes to like Anglo and Germanic Protestantism are actually uh, foreign and introduced by like European and Russian communism and Bolshevism. And it came here in the 1910s and the 1920s and ramped up to FDR's. Uh, and, and he talks about FDR's cabinet and FDR's entire staff, which like people talk about how many communists were in FDR staff. And they use that as like proof that Moldbug is wrong. But he talks about it in the open letter. Uh, and and he he talks about McCarthy and how McCarthy was like correct about how many communists were in the in the government and stuff, right? So he doesn't obfuscate that or deny it. So he or, even goes so far as to call America a communist country after. Uh, right? Yeah, uh, which uh, essay was that? Where he's I forgot that. Yeah, I don't remember right off the top of my head, but yeah. I know he does it several times. Yeah, yeah, he does exactly right. So what I wanted to say real quick is that if you go and look at like Quakerism, that's one of the main ones that Moldbug says kind of like evolved into progressivism and wokeism. And he says, he says right in the, in the open letter that like, if something, if you don't, if you can look back in history at something that existed and there's no point in which it, you see it die, it means it's not dead. It means it's still around. So, so he says like all these like uh, Protestant American religious groups, like who are they now? Well, they're the progressives. Um, and the Unitarians is another one, too. Uh, mm -hmm. But anyway, so if you go back to the 19th century, uh, some of the tenets of Quakerism are like uh, instead of punishing prisoners, you're reforming prisoners. So you don't you don't lock them up in prison to to sequester them away from society or to punish them. You do it to reform them because everybody, you know, that they consider that a fundamentally Christian belief that people people can be, you know, uh, reformed from their 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 ways of error. Uh, pacifism, pacifism was all the way through. There there were pacifists in all the wars in the nineteenth century, eighteenth uh, century. Excuse me. Um, what was the other one? Suffrage, uh, universal suffrage, and women's rights and and feminism. You know, these are all things that communism endorses. But these were these were all things that existed before you know the foreign infusion of communism came over here. Uh, that was in like the 1800s. I recently read the book, um, not Hunger, by Newt Hampson, um, uh, yeah, The Growth yeah. of the Soil. 
the gro growth of the soil. And it's it's about uh, it's about abortion reform in Norway in the 1900s and feminism and the, and the way that like the, the modernization of that country was like tearing apart, you know, the traditional ways of, of society. And I just remember reading that book thinking like, OK, Norway was having all of these problems in like the 1890s and the 1900s. And people are accusing Moldbug of like obfuscating that the fact that communism caused all this stuff in the West. When right here, uh, you're seeing like the very same problems that we're talking about in this in this country and in a previous century that didn't even have like the, the immigration issues that we had in the earliest 20th century. So clearly there's something to it. Uh, and, you know, you could give a million other examples. So something that you've mentioned, Astral, and I agree with you 100 percent, is that it's uh, kind of important, especially if you want to understand the wider kind of neo-reactionary thought, to look at the way that Moldbug and Nick Land interact. Now, I know Moldbug has said many times that he's never read Land. He doesn't like to read people who have responded to his work. So he has he hasn't interacted with it. But this interaction is really essential. It's kind of uh, Moldbug is kind of John Rawls. Of this sphere in the sense that like everybody who wrote after Moldbug was reacting in one way or another to Moldbug. And so you have you you can understand Moldbug on his own. And I encourage people who, you know, if they're too daunted by like a larger like having to chase down every single blog that ever commented on them, you can just read Unqualified Reservations. You can just read the Unqualified Reservations book and you'll still get a coherent kind of understanding of what's happening there. But if you really want to expand and understand what's going on, then Nick Land is really essential. Many people, again, reacted to Moldbug in, in valuable ways. But Nick Land, particularly, you know, with the Dark Enlightenment, which is just entirely uh, his reaction to kind of unqualified reservations. And then later on in something like Xeno Systems, where he kind of adds back in his own accelerationism, is really foundational to kind of the other side, I think, of the neo-reaction uh, kind of uh, sphere and the, kind of all the thought that developed around it. Yeah, I agree. I can't, I, <coughs> the reason I say I can't read Moldbug uh, decoupled from land is because I read land first. Um, well, I, technically I read Moldbug first because I tried to read the open letter, but I, I didn't, it didn't really make sense to me at the time. Um so I've been reading them back and forth for the last three years. And, the, and my understanding of the whole neo-reactionary perspective is, is those two are wrapped up together and Spandrel as well. Mm. But what I want to say, and I don't want to get too abstract here, so I'll try to make it uh, concise. Uh, I understand history. Uh, my perspective on history is certainly informed by Spengler. Um, and many others, but but Spengler kind of has this morphology of culture and this morphology of, of history in which he basically says that like history follows like a certain structure, more or less. And he has the, the phases. You you had a really good episode on Spengler with um, the Prudentialist, one of the best explanations of Spengler I've ever heard. But to make a long story short, um, he's got like the the what is it, the spring, summer, autumn and winter phases of a culture's life cycle, right? And once you hit the winter phase, it's kind of over. And it's re it's reached its final form and it will never like evolve into something more. And it's done. So the question we have to ask is like, if you believe in this, this 
cultural cycle or this historical cycle? Where are we in the cycle? Um, and he, Spengler's got this idea. It's much more complicated than this, but for our purposes, he's got this idea that you transfer, you transition from the culture phase to the civilization phase. And that's basically like the culture phase is basically spring and summer where the, the culture is like flourishing. And then the civilization phase is when it's uh, autumn and winter, when it's kind of ossified and it's sort of like winding down and it's, it's kind of running out of cultural steam. And a lot of thinkers think that we are in the transition phase right now from culture to uh, civilization. And this is a lot of the talk about the Caesar figure. The Caesar figure comes right at that transition. Uh, a really simple way to think about this is Rome going from going from uh, the, the Republic to the Empire, you know, with the Caesars. Uh, they initiate the civilization phase. Accelerationism, as I understand it, is basically the idea that you, you, you understand that you that we are subject, we are subjected to these cycles. And accelerationism, uh, and Nick Land is famous for saying, right, acceleration is happening whether you like it or not. And I understand Moldbug is an accelerationist. I don't, I don't know how he would feel about me saying that, but but that's kind of what I see the clear pill as. The clear pill is kind of like. Uh, we're going to go through these cultural phases, whether you like it or not, and some things are going to happen that you don't like. You can't get upset about it. You can't care about it. And the way he characterizes the clear pill is like you can't be emotionally tied up with like a certain narrative because it might not come to the conclusion that you want it to come to. So when he talks about this like tech monarch CEO, it's sort of like his version, in my opinion, this is how I read it anyway, of of the Caesar figure. So when I say that I'm like a neo-reactionary accelerationist, what I mean is that we're going through these cycles. Another way to call it is the cycle of regimes. Uh, I think Aristotle is the one who characterized it that way. Um, as we transition from democracy to oligarchy, and then oligarchy will eventually uh, transition into tyranny. Um the the democratic processes or the political processes are going to be more and more like further removed from us, the people. They're going to be more and more taken out of our hands and they're going to be more and more concentrated in these like large figures or these large bodies like the Democratic Party or the GOP or uh, these individuals like Donald Trump or Elon Musk. So for me to read Neo-Reaction and Moldbug talking about this like tech future, right? And he's got some of it right in here. He talks about like virtual reality prisons and, and boards of directors with like, you know, uh, heavily encrypted code so that they can make their decisions for government. As we move to this like authoritarian regime or however you want to call it, accelerationism and the clear pill to me means that we accept that we're going through this process and we have to basically uh, do what we can to like make the transition as as painless as possible for as many people as possible. Um, and I could go on because this is these are totally the terms in which I understand Moldbug, but I want to let one of you guys come in to, to pick it up. And I don't know, maybe you disagree or see it, see it the same way. I'm not sure. Well, I think what Land does that is so valuable, um, particularly in the Dark Enlightenment, is he expands in really important ways on a lot of the ideas that Mulbug touches on 
and puts them in terms that I think are really clarifying. So that's one of his incredibly value, con valuable contribu contributions. And part of that is Land's similar interest. Like you said, there's, there's already this kind of tech futurist, um, you know, CEO monarch, uh, you know, uh, strain in, uh, in mold bug, you know, patchwork and everything. But I think what Land is particularly interested in is kind of the end of the political uh, and what exists beyond the end of the political uh, as where someone like Dugan looks at this as kind of the, the ability of the political to reemerge. I think both Moldbug and land are looking to kind of remove the political from, from, from the kind of the general reach of the, the people at all. And for land, it seems, I, I, I also kind of look at it with a little bit of Spangler there, you know, uh, for for land, it's the ability to escape. I think perhaps the civilizational cycles altogether. Kind of the you know the the interesting thing about uh, Spangler is you know the his idea that the Faustian man is always reaching beyond, is always trying to kind of push things and expand things into spaces that never existed before. And so the question is, can like Faustian man escape the civilizational cycle? Can he do what no other great uh, high culture has done before? And I think in some ways, accelerationism is the attempt to do so by uh, by kind of removing the some of the uh, civilizational forces that would otherwise kind of tie you to this cycle. Now, for land, this means and can he because he comes at this from kind of uh, his his kind of old Marxist background is is that capital is just deterritorializing everything, every bond, every uh, thing that makes us traditional, everything that used to kind of hold these cultures and civilizations together. And by doing so, it kind of uh, possibly achieves uh, escape velocity from everything that kind of makes us human and the need for, you know, the political and these other uh, kind of institutions to continue to interact. Uh, so, there, there, I mean, there's there's lots of places we could, you know, you can't spend the whole uh, stream talking about land's interaction, but they are all very fascinating and well worth uh, reading these two thinkers in tandem if you have the opportunity. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to um, hog the mic on Nick Land, but you are <laughs> you are um, speaking right to my uh, my sci fi nerd proclivities <laughs> here. Um, but yeah, for anybody who wants to look deeper into it, uh, Xeno Systems is, is certainly where you want to go among among others. But that's the most direct one. Oren, can I use your platform real quick to speak directly to Nick Land and the off chance that he's listening? By all means. Okay, Nick, um, or Mr. Land, however you prefer to be uh, <laughs> called. Uh, I've been trying to get a hold of you. I would love to publish uh, Xeno Systems, uh, given the relevance to you are and everything else we are doing. So please respond to my DMs, or there's some other way to get a hold of you. Maybe uh, someone listening can get a hold of Nick. Uh, Mr. Land, we would love to publish his book, uh, given the overlap here. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's an invaluable resource, guys. Um, you know, like I said, I think Dark Enlightenment is probably the first place you go, should go because it's just a direct reaction to you are. So if you've read Unqualified Reservations, then Dark Enlightenment, but you absolutely should then continue on to Xeno Systems. Oh, the nice thing about Xeno Systems is most of the entries are like a page. Uh, so they they are really thoughtful, but they are not overlong. It's something you can land can at times become very difficult to process. You can you can write in a very uh, way that obscures a lot. But the Xeno systems, while being complicated, are at least bite sized enough where you can kind of 
go over them multiple times and better understand them. Yeah, well, so Moldbug puts a lot of like super tech ideas in his writing. Uh, he had the one, I think it was called Fascism and Communism Today. It came out last year. And he talks about like uh, he talks about like the 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 CEO having like a, a, an encrypted code that he can be like he doesn't know the code to it a key excuse me and not a code a key and he like can't get anything past the board without using this key and if they don't like the way he's ruling uh, they take the key away from him and they pick a new person and it gets it gets really complicated but. My point is that uh, Nick Land like picks this stuff up and he's got this whole like futuristic AI Skynet. He's always talking about Skynet like taking over. And, I, you know, I don't know how realistic some of this stuff is. I don't know how realistic all this stuff is. You know, is, are we going to get a Caesar? I don't know. Is how, how much energy and how much intellectual capital should we really put in to the idea that Skynet's going to take over or that... Um, that there's going to be a tech CEO someday ruling the country. You know, I don't know, but these guys make pretty strong arguments. Can, can I ask that question? Like how realistic do you think some of this stuff is? Uh, is that fair to ask? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think the Caesarism thing's kind of an inevitable, inevitable. I think, I think the cycle there will happen. Some people disagree with me about that, but I think that part's uh, kind of inevitable. It won't be direct. Like no one's going to name anybody King. Um, but it, it'll be the transition in the way that you get, you know, uh, you know, Augustus, uh, uh, you know, uh, taking power. No, no one calls him emperor, but everyone understands uh, that he's accumulated the, you know, the Senate still exists. We kind of go through the motions in some way, but but everyone kind of knows that the, the first citizen is the one in charge. Uh, when it comes to A.I., uh, you know, Land's whole point is that uh, about accelerationism is, like you said, it ha it's happening whether you want it to or not. And the decision space to do things about it is collapsing because the cycle is accelerating itself. There's fewer and fewer interactions with humanity as kind of each part of the system uh, ends up kind of auto generating a, a tighter feedback loop. And so for land, you know, there might not even be the, it doesn't really matter how much you put into it. You'll, you'll never be able to pursue AI safety or any of these things anyway, and it'll merge on its own. Uh, but that, that's a, that's obviously a more controversial uh, conclusion of his. Yeah. I think um, to the previous point about like a Caesar, I have the same view as you do, Oren, and the model that Curtis always points to, and I think is the most likely, the most plausible is a sort of new FDR where an executive comes in and through sort of the force of his rhetoric and by seizing on these various levers uh, within the uh, DC bureaucracy, all power is refocused and consolidated to the executive. And then these other branches of government you know, there's all sorts of ways that this might happen through like court packing or whatever. Um, these these other branches become these kind of like impotent, you know, uh, it's just pro forma sort of proceduralism without any real power. They're just operating in accordance with uh, with the executive's um, interests and agenda. And, and that seems I mean, uh I, I agree that that seems almost inevitable that, that we're heading in that direction. And, 
Um, yeah, I saw the other day someone had mentioned, I think it was uh, my friend uh, Peachy Keenan had mentioned, you know, there was a video of Gavin Newsom doing something or other in California. And as much as I hate to say it, it seems as equally plausible that it's a blue Caesar in the form of Gavin Newsom as it is a red one. But in either case, that seems the direction we're headed. Um, you know, I, I, I'm just going to go off in a brief tangent here. One thing that I found with unqualified reservations, you know, Curtis does put forward a prescription for how to um, eradicate, basically liquidate the cathedral and install like this executive that's going to like take over the sort of corporate restructuring he calls, it. you know, he sticks with this corporate metaphor throughout the book. And um, this was always kind of vague. It was like, you know, and I don't know, maybe land has a better and clearer answer for how this is supposed to happen. But, you know, one day we're just going to, there's going to be tanks in Harvard yard. And then we snap our fingers and we have like benevolent dictator Lee Kuan Yew or something uh, leading the U S for the, you know, our glorious future or whatever. And I, I haven't really come to terms yet or seen the mechanism by which that happens. And I think actually Curtis, to some extent in this book sort of punts on that question. I mean, he proposes like a few possibilities for this to happen, but one thing, whether it's with land and Skynet stuff or all this AI, it seems to me a bit of sort of wishful thinking. There are like steps in this process that I don't think any of us have quite figured out yet. How do we actually uh, pull off what amounts to a coup? Okay. I mean, I, I mean that uh, in the least sort of violent sense of the term, but it, at what point and how do you uh, move on from this broken down system into some new machine? You know, you take all the parts and you move to some new machine that is now being operated by this, what Curtis calls receiver or this executive. And I don't yet really see the mechanisms for that. And one curious thing about you are in Curtis's new intro that he wrote for this book is he basically warns readers, uh, we're nowhere near that point yet. We're not there. And it could be a long time off. I mean, this could be a sort of generational project pushing us in that direction. And I think that's largely what our political work is, is sort of how do we imagine or get to a place where we can, you know, uh, defang the cathedral and basically liquidate whatever you want to call it, liquidate these sort of this, this sort of bureaucratic regime that is ruling over us. I think that's the major uh, sort of ideological task before us. Well, so Yarvin, I think, does punt or he's a little bit oblique sometimes because I don't I, 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 I mean, I don't know. But I, I think he doesn't want to get too specific because the more specific you get, the more wrong you'll be in the future. But one of the th ways he addresses this is he talks about. Uh, in Rome, like all these big, powerful Caesar like figures. And, you know, remember the slide into the fall of the Republic and the rise of the empire took something like 120 years. I think most people date it to like the beginning to the Gracchi brother murders, which were something like 100 years before Caesar, 120 years before Caesar. And then there was a long, slow process. 
And the big figures along the way, Marius, Sulla, Pompey, Crassus, and Caesar, they all addressed big problems that the state had that the that the state couldn't handle on their own. Uh, Marius reformed the military. Uh, Sulla took care of a, of a, a, a king who was a wayward, uh, you know, king of the who was. I can't remember his name now, but he genocided like 80,000 Romans. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was basically like taking money from the state and then doing things like killing Romans in his country. And nobody was doing anything about it. And Sulla finally took care of him. Pompey cleaned up the, uh, the, the pirates in the Mediterranean. Crassus was took care of. He was like a fireman. He took care of the, the rampant fires that were devastating the city of Rome um, and became a landlord, a wealthy landlord. And then, of course, Julius Caesar was the first guy to go into uh, uh, England where there were wealthy tin mines. And Rome had known about this for a long, long time, and they were never able to go up there. And he, he conquered Gaul and went up there and get, got them access there. The point being, and, and Yar, these are all examples that Yarvin uses. The point being that the state had all these goals uh, and they had all these problems and they couldn't achieve their goals and they couldn't fix these problems. And these like charismatic wealthy strongmen came along and fixed them all and by doing that they they amassed like huge amounts of influence and power to themselves and they eventually took the state over and if you remember uh sulla took the state over and became a uh, consul for life and he abdicated it at the end i mean arguably sulla could have like started a dynasty right then and there so I think this is the way by which uh, uh, Moldbug thinks these types of things are going to happen. And two examples that I like to use is, well, well, Moldbug uses one of these examples, which is that uh, when they tried to roll out Obamacare, uh, they, they couldn't, the state couldn't make the website work. It, it didn't work at all. So last minute they brought in a private contractor. Um, and then on, think about like Eric Prince's Blackwater, uh, how much work they did at DynCore and other, uh, 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 I almost called them mercenaries. I guess we could just call them mercenaries. Private armies uh, were in Iraq. I mean, they're the ones who got like most of the stuff done, right? Or or a lot of the stuff done for us because they weren't beholden to like the bureaucracy. That's the whole key here. That's the whole key. Mm. Pompey wasn't beholden to the bureaucracy. Sola wasn't beholden to the bureaucracy. They just did whatever they wanted to do. And if you look at somebody like Elon Musk, and I know he's the go-to guy, um, but you know, I'm kind of becoming more and more flagrant about my like endorsement of him as like the person to watch right now because of his, he bought Twitter. I mean, he took Twitter away from the state. He, he took away their propaganda tool. And, uh, one of the things the state used to do, and this will be my last example, but I hope I make the picture clear here, like how this transition happens. And Yarvin does call it a coup. He does use that word. Um, the state used to, to to operate the space program. The state used to go to space. That used to be like one of the main uh, things that we used to like put us together as a nation and as a people like looking to this like shared destiny or this shared project. We were all working together to like put a man on the moon. Like all of America got behind that. And that's gone now. And the state like over time has just been putting less and less and less money into the space program. And that knocks out like uh, one of our, like our goals as a people to strive towards. And here's Elon Musk, like coming along and like taking up the mantle and taking up the project. And he's stated this as like one of his main goals in life. Like this is one of the things he, his entire project is working towards. So he, he exists as a figure. Oh, and think about another good example is, 
he put Neuralink in uh, Ukraine. So there he is like helping communications up and run this one guy, this one independent capitalist businessman uh, putting the communications infrastructure in place that the state was unable to do so that they could perpetrate their war in Ukraine. Uh, so. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, I think you're right that that's kind of how Moldbug lays that down and uh funny enough uh elon musk was uh was replying to alex kashuda today so uh you know well, he, he might be uh more familiar with our sphere than people might realize but um i think a lot of one of the big uh another one of the big criticisms that Mulbug always got was that he leaned too hard on collapse that there was just kind of this magical collapse that would happen and then kind of things would move forward but i think you're right that he he lays it out a little more particularly and, you know, he often makes the connection between, like, the fall of the Soviet Union, right? He just says, look, at some point, people are still going through the motions because it's the only system they know, and there's really nothing to, like, receive the system after it collapses. So they're still doing it, but then, like, at some point, they realize that, like, no one cares about this anymore, and it's just completely an apparatus of power, and no one's invested in it, and it's not producing anything anymore. And people just kind of wake up and say, maybe we don't do this anymore, and we do something else. Uh, he's a little too tidy in that. That's not exactly how the Soviet Union fell, but uh, but he does make uh, he does make the point that you know the things the transition between the governments or the transition to the governmental form doesn't need to be some kind of violent revolution or some kind of big smash, some kind of massive uh, you know uh, show of force or anything. That these things people will peacefully uh, or willingly transition to these new forms when they realize the old forms are kind of just rotten to the core and are fading away on their own. And, uh, he has, he has seemed to have elongated his timeline on that. As both of you have kind of pointed out, he has kind of pushed that down the road and said, no, we could be stuck in this kind of degrading, uh, form for a long time before that transitions. Uh, but that was in the UR days, something that he went to repeatedly. Yeah, one thing I like to point out, and I'm I'm not really sure what the counter argument to this is, if there even is one, but people like to talk about collapse, maybe because collapse is like exciting, you know, the meme, nothing ever happens and people just want something to happen. But the way I understand it, like the Roman Republic didn't collapse. It, it's not like it, it it's not mm -hmm. like it like decayed so much that it collapsed and Caesar like reigned over the ruins. He just like replaced it. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, they were in a much worse state than we are because you have to remember this hundred year period I was talking about was uh, endless, endless civil wars. I mean, Marius and Sulla fought a war against each other. Um, uh, 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 Augustus and um, Mark Antony fought a war against each or a huge battle against each other anyway. And the Roman Republic never collapsed, even though they call it a collapse. It, it didn't actually fall. People weren't like liquidated. Uh, the city wasn't burned. It just was everything was just replaced by by Augustus. So I don't think we need to see that happen at all. If it and you kind of already said this, Orn, but if if the CEO monarch takes over in America, the Senate and the Congress could still be intact. Not only could the Senate and Congress still be intact, they could still meet with the same regularity. The Roman Senate met all the way to the end of the empire. Uh and and debated things as if they had power, but you know it just it basically turned into emperor worship. But uh, they never the Senate was never dissolved, as far as I know. Yeah, no, I think you're right, and I think uh, that's a good perspective that people have when they're kind of demanding some kind of 
immediate explanation to how you know you'll get this this really quick transition uh but that said we are already running long and the super chats are stacking up but we can't in we can't go to the super chats without at least touching on gray mirror and kind of the wider expansion of mold bug so we won't spend too long on it but i'm hoping each one of you will kind of talk a little bit about post ur yarvin what do we think about the legacy of uh well my batteries went out there uh what do we think about the legacy of uh unqualified reservations what do we think about gray mare and it's in kind of yarvin once he started writing his own name and what do we think about the fact that yarvin is now making contact with kind of major political players you know uh, people like uh you know tucker carlson he shows up on the tucker carlson show uh he writes for things like claremont he uh, obviously had some level of contact with Blake Masters and others, Peter Thiel. What do we think about that legacy? I can jump in here. Um, I, I don't know any of this uh, for sure. I mean, I've talked to Curtis a little bit about this, but um, my impression of UR versus Gray Mirror is that Gray Mirror has like a different audience. There's a different sort of rhetorical goal that Curtis is trying to accomplish with UR. And one thing we just got done discussing is how since UR was written, I think Curtis's mind has changed about a couple of things. One is the immediacy of this possibility of collapse. Uh, that timeline, as you said, Oren, has been extended. And I've heard him speak on this subject. And he, in fact, thinks we're nowhere near collapse, that this machinery can just kind of keep on chugging uh, aimlessly across the sort of power landscape for a long time. Um, so there's no uh, possibility of imminent coup or imminent uh, regime change. Um, what I think you are is doing or what Gray Mirror is doing then is it's a uh, persuasion campaign. Curtis is sort of proselytizing to, I think, what he thinks are possibly open-minded progressives. I think that's his intended audience. People that he thinks might be uh, persuaded with the right kinds of arguments and the right kind of approach to abandon what he identifies as a kind of faith-based uh, belief in the prevailing consensus ideology, this prevailing sort of default liberal ideology that uh, holds up this, you know, concept, however degraded, of democracy as its sort of primary virtue and primary organizing principle. And he's just, I think, trying to demonstrate to these progressives who may be frustrated or disappointed with this or that direction that the country and uh, sort of the West generally uh, with the leadership of America is headed and at least lead them to the possibility that there's some other way of organizing ourselves without being as direct uh, as he was with UR and potentially scaring off that audience. And so what I think has happened is that some of us on the right who previously knew Car Curtis as Mencius Moldbug think that his message is sort of diluted or has been neutered in some way 
or that he's gone soft or, you know, he's refusing to say certain things that he would have said 10 years ago. And that's true, but there may be an intention behind that, I think, which is that uh, you have to meet people where they're at. And if your goal is to meet these fence-sitting progressives, then you're going to have to drop some of that harsher language uh, just as a matter of um, being sort of rhetorically practical. And so that's how I view you are. The wisdom of that approach, whether it can be effective, whether you can actually convince any of these people, whether you can actually convince Noah Smith, for example, to or Matt Iglesias or whatever, to... Um, sort of abandon this default liberalism, I sort of doubt. I, I don't know that that's possible. Maybe you convince, though, Noah Smith and Matt Iglesias's readers or the Gen, the Gen Z you know, version of Matt Iglesias or Noah Smith who hasn't yet graduated into their sinecure in the cathedral. And maybe we can push them in our direction. So that's, that's what I think the UR project is about. Yeah, I think that's that's mostly right. Um, uh, again, people can have mixed feelings on the uh, on the possibility of converting those people, but I think that is the wider project. I think Curtis has always been a little too sure about the need of kind of blue states and their elites to handle everything. Sorry about the beeping, guys. My uh, my power has gone out, so I'm on battery backup here. So hopefully uh, that'll all hold and be fine. But You'll get some uh, get some nice beeping in the background otherwise. Uh, but however you feel about the veracity of that project, I think that is Curtis's uh, kind of kind of aim with Gray Mirror. And obviously the fact that he is now speaking to a much wider audience means to some extent it has worked. But what do you think, Astral? Uh, first of all, thanks for for sticking to it uh, with your with your power out, man. We appreciate that. But uh, I, I agree with both you guys. I would <coughs> excuse me. You know, I think we would be remiss if we don't mention the Dark Elves and the Hobbit. That's everybody's favorite terminology that he uses, right? <coughs> Sorry. The way I see Grey Mirror, especially lately, is he's really trying to push, like, the whole art-right thing. He's really trying to... I mean, he's been, like, touring the country. He's been doing podcast tours. He's been going to parties. He's been doing meetups. <coughs> he just put a... Uh, thing on his blog about meeting people in New York City this weekend or this week. So he's really trying to make this happen. He's really trying to get the the culture thing going. And I got I got to mute for a second. I'm I'm sorry. I still got this cold. Yeah, no problem. Uh as soon as Astral gets back, we'll jump into the uh the super chats here guys. We're going to get through as many of them as we can. Like I said, I am on a battery backup here, so I don't want to push my luck too long. So Sorry, we normally would uh, commit more time to answering these, but we're going to try to move through them as quickly as possible. Sorry, Astro, you were yeah, saying? Yeah, no, no, I'm sorry about that, guys. I just wanted to say that the Passage Press and the Passage Prize and the publishing of UR is part of that wider project I see of, like, trying to, like, influence the culture by creating art, by making, you know, he, he's got this parallel institutions ideas, which some people think is silly. I don't think it's silly at all. I think if there's going to be a replacement of the regime, it's going to be things like this, like artists and thinkers and, and shows like yours and <coughs> companies like Passage Press. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump into our super chats here real quick. We've got uh, Moby7. Thank you very much, sir. Thanks for all your great work. Well, absolutely. I appreciate it. Thanks for watching, guys. 
Uh, Will here for $2, Three Kings. Yep, I'm glad to have both these gentlemen on. Definitely uh, check out all of their work as well. Well, make sure that you're checking out Astral's podcast and you're checking out everything that comes out of Passage Prize and Lomez here. Uh, we've got uh, Nate for Five Canadian. Great show, Oren. Thank you. Really appreciate it, man. Uh, we've got uh, Justin Palmer here for $10. Oren rocks. Keep up the great work, all three of you. We're going to win. Absolutely. Everybody's going to make it. Don't worry. Let's see. Uh, we've got one uh, Pronomian Chomsky here for $9.99. Yarvin has argued that Protestantism evolved into liberalism to get around separation of church and state. Is it uh, pseudoscientific to talk about the evolution separate from biology? Yeah, again, he does this a lot, especially in How Dawkins Got Pwned, which again is in the Unqualified Reservation Volume 1. How Dawkins Got Pwned is one of my favorite essays by Yarvin. I think it's very insightful. He explains that idea multiple times. He explains it in the open letter and, and such, but I think that How Dawkins Got Pwned is the best iteration of that. Uh, there is obviously some stretching of the biological metaphor when you talk about evolution in this way, but I do think it is a very valuable way to understand kind of some of that interaction. And I think it is, even if, Everything isn't one-to-one, -one, even if there are some leaps in logic, that kind of thing. Uh, as I think uh, both Lomez and uh, Astral have said, there's a lot of value in that narrative, uh, at least understanding some of the ideas behind it and the development behind it. So I do think even if it doesn't hit all the best points, it is valuable. Um, Ronald McDuggets, $25. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, Reese Spangler. Uh, Volkmar Weiss's book on population cycles shows eugenic cultures select for intelligence, hard work, order, and genes create prosperity. Uh, co uh, competition elites to redistribute surplus uh, uh, commences and civilization is destroyed. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly big parts of that also in land as well. And also the consequences of kind of, you know, what happens with IQ shredders when uh, the population ends up selecting to, to kind of lose a lot of its uh, useful IQ and funnel it into interactions that don't actually further kind of the good of civilizations uh, or the continuation of civilizations. So that's important as well. Uh, Will for $4.99, buy based brands. Yes, absolutely. It's really important, guys, when you get opportunities to support people like Passage Press to do what you can. Uh, so whenever you have an opportunity to kind of, uh, do what you can to contribute and help out our friends, it is well worth your time. Um, let's see, Ronald again for $20. Thank you again. Very generous, sir. What do you, what do you all think of Yoren's, uh, definition of left and right? In my opinion, right wing is about making defined groups stronger against external enemies. Kristen as a nation state, both right wing conception but Trotsky internationalism neocons cannot be right wing. Uh, well, obviously, uh, Yarvin's understanding of right wing heavily involves pronomian ideas and uh, you know, uh, extropy versus entropy. Uh, he has a whole idea of the left as entropy, which is another big, uh, a big part of neo reactionary thought. But uh, guys, what do you think about Yarvin's definition of left and right and how they've held up kind of over this uh, intervening period. Yeah, I'll jump in there. Yeah, I mean, um, in short, Curtis defines like the right reactionary as valuing order, stability, security. And, you know, progressivism is 
uh, preferencing change and change as like an inherent good. Uh, again, that like ties back to their Whig history view of things that all change is definitionally good because change happens in the future and the future is better than the past. I think that's mostly right. It's, it's fine enough as like uh, a model for following uh, into more complex arguments about how we sort of situate ourselves and organize ourselves along these dimensions. It's not complete. But like, um, you know, as I think it's good enough for government work. And so when we're thinking about what really matters in politics, it's not really these dimensions of right and left, but friend and enemy. And I think Curtis gets to that. And I think we're at the stage now where friend and enemy is all that matters. It's, uh, and so this idea of order and stability versus change or entropy, um, I think is good enough. All right. So we've got a uh, uh, cynical skeptic here. What do accelerationists think of Christianity? Will it be uh, be the point uh, Dissident Right should rally to uh, rally to considering it is it's sorry, guys, I'm reading fast here trying to get through everything. Uh, it's endless philosophizing that got us here, uh, got us into this mess. Are we missing something? Yeah, to be uh, clear, like, while I think there are a lot, there's a lot of land that is very valuable, and I think he's right on a number of things, uh, kind of his embrace of accelerationism and kind of what comes after has always been concerning to me. That's something that I, it, the, the existence that land kind of looks at seems pretty bad, though I think land's point would be our existence right now is pretty bad, uh, and it might be the only way of escaping its further degeneration. Uh, but I think other... Uh, other solutions are necessary. I don't think uh, that the ones he he's pointing to uh, do create a good future for humanity. Um, and I, being a Christian, simply can't. You know, the, that is a central part of uh, my identity and the identity that I would want perpetuated into the future. So I couldn't. You couldn't persuade me to abandon it either way. Uh, so whether whether it's tactically sound or not would would not really be a consideration uh, for me. Uh, so I would certainly think it has to be an essential part of uh, of kind of where we would rally. And I would agree with you that uh, while I do love philosophy, I do love political theory. Uh, at some point, your movement has to be about much more than that, which is I think a lot of what people are trying to do now. Uh, sorry, go ahead. If I could just jump in, I wanted to just Absolutely. add that I think kind of a central tenet of accelerationism is the breakdown of morality. And if traditional morality has broken down, the idea with accelerationism is it's like it's not going to go back to what it was before. So some people want to preserve or conserve traditional morality. I'm one of those people. I'm a pretty traditional person. Uh, my morals are pretty standard Christian morals, but um, I'm also realistic. That's how that's how I see like accelerationism is being realistic about the future. And I do think that like the 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 the, the whole Nietzschean thing about like the institutional uh, uh, source of power and ordering of society that the church once provided is is gone for us now, and that uh, what we're seeing is just the long slow degeneration and breakdown of morals excuse me <clears throat> uh so i think it's really realistic 
of accelerationism not to 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 have like a need for morality. I'm not saying we don't need morality. Of course we do. But I don't think the philosophy of accelerationism needs to integrate morality into it because it's inherently baked into the concept that uh, traditional morals are breaking down. That's why we're in the position that we're in. Uh, and of course, they have nothing to do with like a an AI future. Why, why is the AI Skynet going to care about that? It's it's totally irrelevant to them. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I found Alexander Dugan's work kind of interesting here. He's he's not right on everything. I have major disagreements with him on certain stuff, but he also seems to have approached some of the problems of accelerationism as well. He seems to have followed uh, a different path, some of the same conclusions about what's going on that land reached. And but he comes to them with instead like the ability to have a rebirth of certain parts of things like mysticism and traditional morality that can't exist in modernity uh, that can't survive kind of the idea of the death of God. And so uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in the fact that there are other people who have reached similar conclusions uh, to kind of where we're at, but have a different view of where we might go with that. So uh, that's something I'm exploring, but, uh, but I, I won't disagree with you that land has very challenging questions for anybody who wants to pursue that project. He thinks Christian morality holds back the potential of technology. Mm -hmm. All right. And we got one more here wrestling with Wormwood for four ninety nine. Uh Glad God bless uh, you all. Thanks for all you do. Keep posting gentlemen. Well, thank you very much guys. I really appreciate a lot of positive messages there. A lot of encouragement, really appreciate all you guys do. Uh, you know, the uh, audience of this channel has obviously made all of this possible so many of you kind of came on board as I was explaining a bunch of Curtis Yarvin, Minchus Mulbug, and his work. So I know that's why many people kind of eventually uh, ended up joining this channel. And so it's great to kind of talk with two guys who I think do great work and kind of look at the legacy of UR. But obviously, my battery backups are beeping at me, so I don't know how long we have left. Uh, Lomez, uh, why don't you let people know where they can find your stuff if there's anything exciting coming up and then ast after him, Astral, you go ahead and then we'll get out of here. Thanks, Oren. Uh, once again, uh, honored to be on the show. Really enjoyed this discussion. Um, if you're interested in buying the UR book, which of course I encourage everyone to do, you can do so at passage.press. It's just passage.press. We have a bookstore there where that is as of now, because we've sold out of our other books, the only book on sale. Our uh, next book in the pipeline is going to be a Steve Saylor book. Um, that hasn't been formally announced yet, but we're working on that. That'll be available probably in the fall. And then we'll have uh, the Passage Prize 2 book um, we are working on, and that should be available in the summer. So please follow the Passage Press ac uh, account, uh, Twitter account, at Passage.Press, um, and I'll be uh, providing updates there. Um, yeah, thanks again, Orr. All right, Astral, and where should everybody find your work? Thanks, man. Yeah, I'm on astroflight.substack.com. It's where I have a podcast. You can also find it, Astro Flight Podcast, on um, Spotify and iTunes. And follow me on Twitter. <clears throat> My at is Thulian Revenant. Um, and uh, I, I host Twitter spaces quite frequently. And we have a group chat, a Passage Press group chat, where we're discussing unqualified reservations. It filled up within three days. And uh, I actually wanted to to come on your show. I'm really, really honored to do this as a way to kick off the discussion of Moldbug. So if you tune into my Twitter page, I'm going to try to have uh, one Twitter space a week with members from the group chat reading group 
discussing uh, unqualified reservations and hopefully all the way through all of Passage Press's publications, we do that. So we're going to have uh, winners from last year's Passage Prize on a Twitter space discussing their work from last year in the run up to the publication of Passage Prize 2. And we're going to have the winners from the second Passage Prize uh, come on and discuss. So we want to keep this going, you know, in per perpetuity as long as, um, you know, Passage Press is, is publishing books. Excellent. So make sure you check out all of those spaces, guys. Make sure that you check out everything that Passage Press is putting out. If you haven't subscribed yet, you know, join the podcast, everything else, make sure you do so. And we really appreciate everyone coming on. And I really appreciate the fact that my batteries held out till the end of the show. So thanks for coming by, guys. And as always, we'll talk to you next time.